Okay, let's stand and read the gospel. John chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, the Jesus stood on the beach yet the disciples did not know that it was him. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out of the land, got onto land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this miracle in the Sea of Galilee that morning was very intentional by you. And as I was preparing this week, I learned just how intentional it really was. And I pray, God, as I try to convey your truth to this church, that they will see exactly what you're trying to accomplish in the disciples' lives and the lessons that you are teaching us as well. And may we be more than just hearers of the word, but doers of the word when we learn what you have for us today. I pray in your Holy Spirit strength and your power and your guidance that you will give me only words of truth to say and uh, give our congregation an open heart to see your, your truth and want to walk in it. We look forward to our time together as always. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Turn off, it just goes. Yeah, I'll just make sure. 10 10. She's still going. Still going. Okay. Just create a screensaver. <clears throat> well, we remember from last week's sermon that Jesus had just made two separate resurrection appearances to his disciples while in Jerusalem. This the first one occurred on a Sunday evening which was the first day of his resurrection, when all the disciples, with the exception of Thomas, were gathered together behind closed doors. Remember, they were fearful of the Jews, and so they had come together to hide. But the second occurrence occurred eight days later, and this time Thomas happened to be there. Well, today, as we begin our passage, we have yet another of Jesus' resurrection appearances to the disciples. And verse 14 tells you this was the third time that Jesus was manifested to them. Now, this manifestation occurred at the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias. 
And we pick up the story in verse 1 with seven of the 11 remaining disciples at this location. It says there, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of the disciples were together. Now in the New Testament, the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias and the Lake of Gennesaret and the Sea of Chinneroth are all the same sea. Okay, so if you ever come across the different words for this sea or this lake, there all there's like four different titles for this lake, and I'm not going to get into the reason why there's changes in names, but the Sea of Tiberias here is the Sea of Galilee. Now the reason why they had traveled north from Jerusalem to Galilee is because Jesus had commanded them to do so. Uh, the day that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other women, he told them, "When you go back to the disciples, I want you to pass a message on to them." And here was the message in Matthew 28, verse 10. Actually, I'll give you a picture. There's a Sea of Galilee. Um, you can probably see it. It's the only sea in that picture. And Jerusalem is as far south from here. It's just a little, little tiny uh, thing, but it was uh, pretty popular with the disciples. They grew up there and so on and so forth. So little uh, context of the map. But this is what Jesus uh, was told the women in Matthew 28, verse 10. He said, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So the disciples, in obedience to the Lord, and to the, actually to obedience to the women, trusting they saw Jesus, um, went forth to Galilee as they had told them to. Now Galilee was a f- very familiar place to these men. Uh, for the majority of, majority of them, this is their home. Uh, they were raised there as young men, and this is where they worked. This is where they found their employment, and the majority, again, were fishermen. But most importantly, Galilee was the place where they first encountered Jesus. Uh, you remember that it was Galilee where he first called them into ministry. And in fact, in his entire three years, Jesus spent approximately two of his three years in ministry in that area. So you might think, well, he was, you know, Jerusalem's the center of, of life for a Jew. That's true, but Jesus spent most of his time north of Jerusalem in this area called Galilee. So here there were the disciples back home and in familiar territory, and they were waiting for Jesus to come as he had promised. Now how long they were waiting for, we are not told, John doesn't tell us, but we do know uh, that at some point during their wait, Peter got a little bit anxious and and, uh, wanted to make a move. So he decided with the boys to go ahead and go fishing. In verse 2, it says, or verse 3, rather, it says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat that night, and they caught nothing. Now, why Peter and the boys thought it was a good idea to go fishing is often deba- debated amongst Christian scholars, and maybe even some pastors. Some think maybe for economic reasons they went out some think they were just bored and wanted something to do to pass the time. But I want to suggest another reason for why I think they went fishing. I think they went fishing because they had made the decision to return to their former line of work. They made a decision to, to go back to their former careers, and that was they were fishermen. And I want to give you three observations in the text that I think supports this. First one was the length of time they spent fishing demonstrated that this was not recreational. This was not a catch-and-release festival where you're taking selfies of one another and then throwing the fish back in the river. This is uh, 
this is a, a full night's work. This was hard work. And we can see this in verse 3 and 4. It says, they went out into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. And then in verse 4 it says, when day was now breaking, Jesus was there. So they went all night fishing, all the way to sunrise the next morning. Nobody recreationally fishes for probably eight hours. Um, in, I mean, the, usually you take breaks and so on. But here they are putting a really hard night work in uh, and going all night till morning. The second thing that I see, which is very similar to the first observation, was the fact that they were fishing at night proves this was a return to work and not recreation. You see, the night time was clearly the time that the disciples thought was the best time to catch fish. And the way to understand this is go back to a prior fishing event in Luke 5. This was before the disciples were called into ministry by Jesus. And look what happens here. This is uh, Jesus has come into the boat, taught them, and, and now he's, in the, um, he's watched them go all night without catching a fish. And then he says this. Jesus said to Peter, put down into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. See, the reason that's important is the night, this is three years earlier, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. He hasn't called them into ministry yet. They're still fishermen. Here we have the same parallel. They're working all night and they've caught nothing. And so, so clearly by the fact that they've, they've chose the nighttime to fish and gone for eight hours this morning shows you that they're in the same mindset as they were three years earlier in their old careers. But the third observation, and we're going to come to this in next week's sermon, is Jesus' comment to Peter in verse 15. Look at this. This is, this is after the, this the miracle happens. He says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What's the these? Remember, they're sitting on the beach having breakfast with a huge catch of fish, and Jesus' point is, is saying, do you love me more than this? In other words, do you love me more than the fish, the boat, the sea, your old careers? And then Jesus, Peter says, of course you know I do. And he says, well, then tend my lambs. Stop fishing. Go, go back to ministry. Okay? So it's clear that these men in their minds, to me, from the text, shows that these guys have left ministry to go back to be fishermen. Now, it's important to see that the disciples had decided to return to their former careers because it shows that, that even though they had seen and rejoiced over the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, they still hadn't understood the significance of the resurrection. And they didn't understand how this resurrection was supposed to impact their lives and direct the course of their lives from this day forward. So and you can see why this was. It was a confusing time for them. I mean, they'd given up everything to follow Jesus, and they'd been accustomed to everything that Jesus had provided for them. He'd provided for all their needs, uh, and they'd been making a living proclaiming the gospel. So for these guys, it was like it made sense to go back to their old careers because Jesus wasn't going to be physically present with them anymore. And so they were in a time of confusion and didn't know which way to go in their, in their direction. So I think the question that the disciples were asking at this moment that was probably going through their heads since the crucifixion and even after the resurrection was, what was their purpose now to be? What was their purpose? And what direction was their lives going to take? And who was going to take care of them now that Jesus was no longer around? Because life had gotten pretty good with Christ being around them in terms of their provisionary care. You see, from their perspective, everything they had known had come to an end. But from Jesus' point of view, this was just the beginning and nothing had changed. So he had to help the disciples understand that they were to be fishers of men and not fishers of fish. And so he had to do something drastic. And what better way than getting their attention 
than making this, using this vivid and living demonstration before their eyes. And so we pick up this, this miracle that he does for them in verse 4 and 5. It says, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, and the disciples did not know that it was the Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, do you not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. Why the disciples didn't recognize Jesus right away, I don't know why. I mean, but this was often the case with people who saw Jesus after his resurrection. Remember Mary Magdalene, when he first appeared to her at the tomb? She didn't know immediately who he was. The men on the road to Emmaus, they had no recognition of who he was. Now why this was the case, uh, I can't say for sure. I guess we'll get that answer when we get to glory and see him ourselves. But the part I would have loved to have seen was the look on their faces after Jesus asked them this initial question. Remember these guys' character. They're not exactly known for patience. They're not exactly known for humility. So to have to answer Jesus' question, hey, do you, how was the night of fishing? And they said, what terrible. You can imagine maybe that sort of stung a little bit to have to answer this stranger that things hadn't gone so well. But of course, Jesus knew the answer to this question. He already knew they caught nothing. But he wanted to use this situation to teach them profound truths. So he said in verse 6, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. And so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of their great number of fish. Why these experienced uh, fishermen took advice from a complete stranger is hard to know. Um, because, again, if you were in your trade and you took advice from a guy just down the street yelling across the road, you'd probably like, take a hike, Mike. I don't want uh, anything to do with you. But here are these guys, for whatever reason, whether it be exhaustion or maybe they thought he had a vantage point from the beach of School of Fish they couldn't see. I mean, who knows? But whatever their frame of mind was, the results were incredible. They were incredible results. After hours of failed attempts, in one shot, they hit the payload. I mean, in verse 11, verse 11 tells us, they, they, drew to the, they drew the net to land, and it was full of large fish, 153 153 fish, and all of them were large. So no sardines, right? No goldfish. These are large, awesome fish, 153 after like hours and hours of Zippo. Now it was at this point that one of the disciples clued in that this was no fluke. And this was the touch of the master's hand, someone that he was familiar with. And we pick this up in 7. He says, therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Now, the person that's referred to here is the, the, the disciple named John. And we, for, we can discuss this if you want to later, but John is the one that Jesus loved. And we get the sense from the New Testament that he's often the most spiritually perceptive of all the disciples. Do you remember in chapter 20, verse 8, after they walk into the tomb and see it empty? It says, when he walked into the tomb and saw it empty, he believed. He saw and believed. So John walks in. Mary walks in and starts weeping, going, he's been... Like someone's robbed the grave and grave robbers have them. That's her perception. John walks in, sees the exact same evidence and says, he must have risen. He must have risen. So again, this is an awesome, this guy's spiritually perceptive. And here again, he's the first one out of seven to recognize this has got to be Jesus. And no one else clued in on that right away. But the miracle is already pointing to something in his mind. But even though he was the first one to believe and was probably the most spiritually per perceptive of who this man was, he definitely wasn't not the most impulsive. <laughs> that award went to Peter. And we see Peter's actions in seven as well. 
When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciple came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. We get a real sense of uh, Peter's love here for Christ, don't we? I mean, this would have been a great scene to witness. Here is this guy, dressed in his work clothes. He's got his, his proper attire of clothing in the boat. He hears his Jesus. He throws on all his clothing as a proper attire, probably a sign of respect when he's going to go meet Jesus. He jumps in the water, even though the boat's only 100 yards away from shore. And uh, if he was just a little more patient, he could have stayed dry getting to shore. But here he just wants to see Jesus so badly, he just throws himself in and soaks all his clothes. I mean, from his point of view, nothing was going to deter him from being in the presence of Christ. He wanted to get in his presence immediately and as fast as possible. And it's cool because after Peter arrives on shore, along with the other disciples, they're in for a wonderful surprise. I mean, not only had Jesus come to appear to them again for the third time, he'd actually taken the time to prepare breakfast for them. And we pick this up in verse 9. When they got, out of the, they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Well, none of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, Lord? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now we're going to talk about these verses, these four verses, more in detail at the end of the sermon. But I want to just share one thing with you now that I think is significant with regards to this meal that Jesus served. Notice that this meal was not a communion meal. Not a communion meal. There's no wine present. There's no breaking of the bread. There's no instruction to take this meal in remembrance of him. Right? So there's, this isn't the Lord's Supper. So what was it? This is a meal centered around the idea of fellowship. One shared between the community of believers. So this is kind of like a family reunion. And I think this is important to see because we see the disciples in the early stages of the church in Acts doing the exact same thing. Sharing a meal together and to be with one another in community. Look at this in Acts chapter 2. It says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. A characteristic of the early church was that they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart outside of their regular, um, say, I guess, for lack of a word, Sunday service. I think it's a good reminder for us as Christians. A good reminder. And this is partly why we, we eat as a church afterwards. We don't just say, you know, pack up the Bibles, have a good day, go home. We eat after the service because we recognize the importance of continued fellowship after we've spoken about the Word of God. It's a time to encourage one another, to hear each other's stories, to spur each other one on in the faith, and even shed a few tears if necessary. And we've had a few in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> But this is why we do this. But I would like to encourage you, though, too, that if this is something that hasn't been part of your regular routine in our church outside of Sunday morning, that you would be, be encouraged to try to do this in your own lives. Invite people over for, for meals. It doesn't have to be fancy. It could even be a brunch or a breakfast or it could be a, a lunch or a snack, whatever. But get together with one another, encourage one another, and have people over to your home. 
I've heard about some of this going on in the church. Uh, it's been kind of cool. I've been encouraged to hear that some of you have been having over one another, having one another over for meals and so on, and it's been great to hear. So it's exciting. But this is a great time to build relationships beyond Sunday service. We can only get so deep on a Sunday service in terms of intimacy. Right? There's only so much level we can go to on a Sunday morning downstairs and then in the service. But when we're with one another in each other's homes, there's another level of intimacy that we can get to, and we can get to know one another better and make sure that we are taken care of. And that just makes Sunday morning all more inviting because we already have established relationships. So if you feel a little bit on the outside in Genesis House, let's say you're just like, you know, you just feel like I'm just not quite fitting in the way I'd like to, let me encourage you to say that a model from the New Testament here is to invite people over, be hospitable, have people over, get to know them, and it'll be a way of bridging the gap if you feel distant in the church. I want to finish with this, though. I think this is the key to the sermon. Why did Jesus choose to make his third resurrection appearance to the disciples on the shores of Galilee? Why not choose another location? And why even perform this specific miracle on this specific morning? Why didn't he choose another miracle? Or why didn't he even do another? Why did he choose even to have one at all? Why not just show up and just talk to them? The answer to that, I believe, is found in Luke chapter 5. And I think we should turn there as a church. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And we see the parallels here. We're going to see how powerful and intentional this miracle that day was. So Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Luke 5, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesis. Gennesaret, which is Tiberias, Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put a little way out from the land. He sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out your nets into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down our nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. You know, have you, did you notice all the parallels between this miracle three years before they're called into ministry and the, the miracle that happened three years later after his resurrection? I wrote them all down for you, so I've done the homework. <laughs> all right? But listen to this. John 5, and, or sorry, Luke 5 and verse 21 contrasted. They, Jesus performed the exact same miracle at the same lake. Okay, same location. Some of the disciples were identical. Peter was there. James and John were all there. They were working as fishermen. They worked all night and caught nothing. Jesus commanded them to put in their nets after catching nothing. The disciples obeyed Jesus and trust him at his word. 
they, in both miracles, have an incredible large haul of fish. The miracle occurs just offshore, close to land. And Peter is the first to respond to Jesus. Those are just, those are, I think I have nine comparisons, three years prior, three years later. Now, why the comparison? Why the identical miracle? Well, the key to understanding this is to read the rest of the story in Luke 5. Look at verse 9, starting at, sorry, verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see, Jesus was reinforcing a lesson he had taught them three years earlier, after they witnessed his power. He called them into ministry after that miracle. They were to be fishers of men. Yet since the crucifixion, and even with the resurrection appearances, they hadn't fished once in the entire time since that day. They were in hiding in their houses, and now they were out going back fishing. There was no evidence in these men that they were even thinking about continuing on in what Jesus had started in them and had trained them for. They hadn't witnessed or fished a single person. (laughs) And they had lost their sense of direction and purpose. So this miracle was designed as a way of recommissioning them into service. As they noticed the parallels and the miracles, they were going, oh my goodness, this is identical to what I experienced three years ago. My job description hasn't changed. I'm still employed by Jesus Christ, and I still have a mission and a job to do. So this miracle was intentional. It was to recommission these men back into ministry service and answer the question they did. They were wondering, what's our purpose now that Jesus is gone? And he's like, you get it. You should get it now, boys. You're still, I'm still employing you, and you got a purpose. But I think the miracle also had another inherent lesson in it for the men. And that is this. If they were going to continue on in ministry, Jesus was going to continue to provide for them in the future, even though he was bodily not going to be present with them. Right? I mean, three years earlier, you might remember this in Luke 9, three years earlier, Jesus had chosen these 12 men to be disciples. Well, 11 because Judas is missing. But right after the choosing, he sends them out to different towns and cities to proclaim the gospel. He sends them out to do ministry. And here's the key, church. He told them, don't bring anything with you. Don't bring any money belts. Don't bring any um, extra clothing. Don't bring a money bag, anything. Just, I want you to go out there without anything. And it was Jesus' way of saying this. I'm going to teach you to trust me for your future provisions in ministry. I want you to learn to trust God that he'll meet your needs. And so don't bring anything. Now, what's interesting, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus is in some final teaching moments with the men. And he goes back to that time three years ago when he says to the disciples, So, when I sent you out that time, did you lack anything when you, when you went out there? And you know what the disciples said? No, we lacked nothing. We lacked nothing. Christ had already taught them three years earlier that going into ministry and serving him was going to be an okay thing to do. And they'd be financially and provisionally taken care of. There was nothing to worry about. And that would have been a concern for the disciples. Why? Who's going to take care of him now that Jesus is gone? He's not bodily present anymore. He's resurrected, but he's, he's coming and going, and we just don't know when he's going to be around us. And he's like, listen, man, not only are we commissioning you into ministry, and this, you're still to continue fishing, man, I'm actually still going to take care of you. I'm still going to take care of you. And I'm going to suggest right to you now, 
there was four areas in this miracle that showed that he was going to take care of them in a physical way, not just a spiritual way, but he was there for them physically. And the first one is this. The demonstration of the huge catch of fish. I mean, they caught 153 large fish, and he'd watched them go, and with catching nothing all night. So the fact that he, that he their, their, their haul, that the amount in their haul just proved that he was taking care of them in a, in a physical way. Secondly, which ties into this, they had fished all night with no success, and this hadn't escaped Jesus' notice. How did Jesus know they had a bad night of fishing? <laughs> well, he's God. He knows and sees everything. So he knows that they're not successful, and that's why he shows up there to repeat this miracle. Because he's going to teach them that although he's bodily absent, he's still going to be a provider for them. Thirdly, this demonstration of the supernatural breakfast. Did you notice that? They show up to shore, and there's fish on the charcoal fire, and bread's made. Where's the kitchen to make the bread? Where's the wood and the match to get the fire? Where's the uh, fish? Where's his rod? Where's his boat? Where's his net? There's nothing. But there's this breakfast served and ready. And I believe this was intentional by Jesus. Do you remember what he did in John chapter 6 at the feeding of the 5,000? Disciples go, Jesus, there's 5,000 men. There would be 20,000 people, by the way, not 5,000, because there's women and children were included in that number. So basically, almost all of Okotoks was there that day. They have like... Um, I believe it was five bread and two fish. I think I have it the right way around. Or maybe it was two fish and five bread. I think it's five five bread and two fish. But um, he multiplies out of all that. And then nobody goes hungry. And there's leftovers. There's leftovers. The disciples have already witnessed him providing for people in the desert, in the wilderness. And here again, he's doing it again at the breakfast. And I'm, I'm guessing this is intentional to say, don't you remember all the things I've done in your life up to this day? This breakfast is another sign that you're well taken care of. Fourth, I think it was intentional that Jesus asked the disciples to contribute some of the fish for breakfast. Look at verse 10. He said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Peter went up and drew some in. I think it's intentional he asked them to bring them in. You see, when they came to the fire with a few in their hand, there was one thing going through their mind. They had done nothing to contribute to this breakfast. (laughs) Right? As they bring the fish, they're going, this isn't me doing this. I didn't bring this here. Jesus was the one who brought this fish, and I'm only the contributor because he provided for me. Likewise, the breakfast, I did nothing to contribute to the breakfast, but he's providing for me. You see, Jesus has supplied it all. He supplied everything that day. All they had to do to receive the, the provisional blessing was obey his command. Put your net on this side of the boat. And they did it. And there it was. So I think, again, like these these four aspects of this miracle just show to the disciples Jesus was going to be contributing and providing for them in the future, even though he was bodily not there with them. And there's a lesson in there for us as well, which we'll get to. Now, I realize there could be more said surrounding the sermon, and uh, there's more to say in this passage. And we can go over anything you think I missed in the dialogue. But here are some lessons I would hope you wouldn't miss from the passage. First one is this. As believers, fellowship around a meal, as modeled in the New Testament, should remain an expression of Christian community. 
Fellowship around a meal, as modeled in the New Testament, should remain an expression of Christian community. Remember in the book of Acts, these disciples after this are now uh, opening up their homes, and there's a crazy amount of fellowship going around a meal. And they're, they're encouraging one another and building each other up in the faith and so on. Remember Hebrews 10, he said, in Hebrews 10, the author says, uh, do not forsake the gathering together of believers. Now again, I realize that's in the context primarily of a, of a church assembly. But again, the point he says is because you can, that's where you can encourage one another and spur one another to love and good deeds. So again, a lot of times our, our spiritual growth can even occur even more inside a home or inside a one-on-one uh, conversation around God's word more than even a church service. It's a way of building each other up in the faith. And did you know this church? It's a prerequisite for eldership. If you want to be an elder in Genesis House, you have to be hospitable. If you're not hospitable and you're trying out for eldership, you don't become an elder in this church. So just there's no pressure on the guys trying to be elders. It's just the reality of the situation. It's one of the qualifications in Titus and Timothy. You have to be hospitable. You have to be one who's known to open up your home and show fellowship around a meal. How many times have you ever heard that preached in a sermon? Usually we don't even look at that as another qualification, but it's right in the Bible. So again, you and I know how difficult it is to live in Christian in a, live in a church where there's no fellowship and no uh, not being surrounded by another fellow uh, another body of believers for long periods of time, right? If you go from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday with no Christian contact, no Christian community, you know how hard that can often be. But this is a way for us to build the, the gaps in relationships that we might be having. And we can increase our level of friendship beyond the church uh, service. Secondly, as believers, we can trust in the provisionary care of Jesus despite his bodily absence. We can trust in the provisionary care of Jesus despite the fact that he's not with us. Jesus saw the disciples were in trouble. He knew they didn't catch anything. He knew that they thought they should be taking care of themselves again with their old careers. But he saw that and he thought, no, I'm going to step in and take care of these guys. Of the 153 fish, they would have eaten a few. I'm guessing Peter and the guys in their last attempt would have probably just went and sold the rest in the market. <laughs> okay, Jesus, we get your point. This is the last transaction we're doing in this old career and we're done after this. I can imagine that day. Or maybe they gave them all away to family, right? And uh, didn't ask for a dime. But regardless, this was the last transaction of fish they would have ever had to catch in terms of a, a career situation. Not recreational, but career situation. But again, Jesus does the same for us. He says in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And what were these things? The, the, the passage before says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. And he says, doesn't God like uh, provide for the ravens and the lilies of the field? In other words, if, you, if he provides for the ravens and lilies of the field, why wouldn't he provide for you? But he says the prerequisite, though, is that you have to be a kingdom seeker and you have to be a righteous, a person, a righteous seeker, righteousness seeker. He says, then these things will be added to you. So the key for us, church, in order to be secure in God's provisionary care of us, we have two things to consider. One, we need to be in relationship with them. 
That's not a promise to everyone. That's a promise to those who love him and have a relationship with him. Two, the question is, are we kingdom seekers and do we seek his righteousness? And again, if you want to talk, we can talk about that in dialogue if you want. And the final lesson, which is pretty straightforward, but the primary purpose behind the miracle at Galilee was for Jesus to recommission the disciples into full-time ministry. You may have read this a hundred times or seen it a hundred times and go, why is Jesus doing what he's doing here? But now with Luke chapter 5, you can see exactly what he's doing here. Again, the primary purpose of this miracle was to recommission them into full-time ministry. They were to be fishers of men, not fishers of fish. But they had not understood that. The resurrection hadn't even told them that. But after this day, they got it. They got it. And Peter, you're going to see next week's sermon, Peter, is, or Jesus starts to say now, okay, you, you understand what just happened to you? No, you're going to feed my sheep. You got, there's more feeding to do. Just like I fed you now, you're going to feed my people from this day forward.